0: start us off with Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore the word of the Lord
1: good evening everybody my name is Ian for anybody who doesn't know me um, we're gonna continue our study in the book of Exodus tonight so if you've got a Bible why don't you open it up to Exodus chapter 4 and if you don't have a Bible there is one in the pew right in front of you Um, so we finished up Genesis a couple of weeks ago Uh, we have begun Exodus, and it has already uh, not proven, it's proven to not disappoint. Hi baby, my little girl's waving at me. Y'all can just sit tight for a second. Hi baby girl, I love you. Um, so Exodus has, has, uh, has not disappointed. It has already shown the, the mixture, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, the high and the lows of, of humanity, uh, and what we do whenever we're left to our, our own devices. Um, just kind of by way of of the on ramp getting onto the freeway as we as we get into chapter Four, what Pip covered last week, uh, we saw a couple of, of key elements um, we saw some literary design, some of these hyperlinks that are connected all the way through the bible there's these uh, there 's these cyclical movements that move through scripture there 's this return to eden there 's this redemptive Person that rises up in the in the person of of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and there's all these these significant characters that rise to the surface and seem as if uh, maybe that's the one maybe that's the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and time and time again uh, human beings fail uh, but they are a pointer to the Messiah they are a pointer to the true serpent crusher who is Jesus Christ himself and so we began exodus with uh, the very the very last tail end of, of the Israelites flourishing in Egypt and the the, the imagery there is is sort of um, Them being depicted as this new humanity they've moved into Egypt they survived because Joseph had uh, been chosen by the Lord to uh, to wisely save up resources so that seven years of famine um, wouldn't wipe everybody out. And the Israelites flourished during that time. Joseph's family came up, his brothers and his father came up, and they multiplied a hundredfold. Uh, the Israelites flourished. They were, they, they were fruitful and they multiplied. This is, this is Edenic, Edenic language. It was the command of the Lord to be fruitful and multiply. So there's this, there's this breath of hope but then Pharaoh comes in, a new Pharaoh, Joseph is, is dead, his whole generation, all of his brothers are dead. And this new Pharaoh comes in as the serpent figure and, and crushes the Israelites and puts them in bondage, puts them in slavery. And you see this, this almost exact repeat of language from the garden scene where sin comes in in chapter three and the Lord says to Adam and Eve, cursed is the ground. And in pain you will eat from the earth, and thorns and thistles it will will produce for you. And by the sweat of your brow you will work the field and eat of its fruit. And you will eventually return to dust. You are from dust and you will return to dust. And in Exodus very early on, uh, the Israelites are in slavery and it says that they were at hard labor, and that they were at slave labor, and that they were brutally compelled to work. This is sin language, this is curse language, it's slave language. There's this rise of, of hope, there's this rise of opportunity, there's this flourishing, there's this fruitfulness, there's a multiplying, and then Pharaoh comes in and starts this cycle all over again. And what's really neat is there's these women that show up and they're told to kill, the midwives are told to kill all of the Israel, the Israelite boys, the baby boys that are born, um, and they don't, they don't do it. So this Pharaoh figure, comes to woman and demands of her something and it's sort of this reversal of Eve there's this there's a there's a, a there's like a, a, a quick diversion from this cycle that we've seen Eve was was brought before the serpent the serpent came to her and she fell for his tricks and Pharaoh's men come to the midwives try to destroy the sea trying to destroy Israel and instead the midwives deceive the deceiver is one way that it's been said. They, they listen to the words of Pharaoh, you know, kill the boys, but they don't do it. They rebel and they save the boys. Um, so this, there's this, it's a reversal of Eve and there's a reversal of death. And then Moses is thrown into the water, but he's put into an ark before he's put in the water. So the salvation imagery of, of Noah on the ark during the flood is then, is then coupled with this image of this baby boy floating in the water after Genesis ended with Joseph being in a coffin. Exodus begins with a very live baby floating down the Nile River in an ark. Uh, he's a symbol of life. But then the humanity takes over again. As Moses was hidden by his mother to spare his life, Moses grows up and kills a guy and then hides him in the dirt and the cycle starts all over again. Uh, So that's just a little bit of of just catching up to to where we are. Um, And Moses is called out of the burning bush in chapter three. The Lord tells him, you're gonna go to Pharaoh, you're gonna tell him what's up, and you're gonna get my people out of there. And so our story continues in chapter four. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you so this is the third, just for those of you who like to make notes and keep count of, of, of the cycles that are, that are occurring here, this is the third time that Moses has offered an objection. His first objection was in chapter three. He said, Who am I? Who am I that you're gonna send me? His second objection was, Who are you? Who am I that I that I should go to Pharaoh and speak on your behalf? And, and who are you? What's your name? What should I tell people? If they ask me who sent me, what am I gonna say to them? And here is his third objection: they will not believe in me. But the Lord says to him in verse 2, what is in your hand? And he said, a staff. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand out and catch the serpent by the tail. So he put his hand out and he caught it and it became a staff. In his hand. I, I don't know what kind of weird childhoods you all had, but I grew up catching snakes just for fun. And the thing that you learn pretty quickly is that the tail is the last place that you want to catch a snake. That's the opposite of where you want to catch a snake. That's the most, that is the, that is the most likely place where a snake's gonna whip around and it's going to bite you. And, and the reason why I, I mention that is, is because already the Lord is, is pressing on Moses and we're gonna see, it's already begun and we're going to see it continue with greater and greater intensity. The Lord is pressing on Moses. This isn't about you. This isn't about your eloquence. This isn't about your prowess. This isn't about your past. This isn't about who you are. This is about me working through you. Grab the snake by the tail. You don't do that. Grab the snake by the tail. And it became a staff in Moses' hand. In verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, verse 6, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And so he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out again, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Verse 8, the Lord said to him, if they do not believe you or listen to the first sign, they may, that they will believe the latter sign. So this is a cool mirror image that's happening here. This is one of those things that's easy to read over and just move on to the next point. But the Lord is making a point here. There's this, there's this repetition. There's a command about the staff and there's a command about Moses' hand. And then there's an obedience about the staff. Hesitant as it may have been and there's an obedience about his hand and at both of those cycles the Lord says This is so that they may believe Here's here's a sign. Here's a miracle. Here's a sign to signify who's in charge Here's a sign to signify who's in control Here's a sign to signify that I'm going with you throw the staff on the ground Throw the, it turns into a snake Pick it back up put your hand inside your cloak Both of these are punctuated right in the middle with so that they may believe this is the point A command obedience and belief but if that's not enough verse 9 he says if they will not believe these two signs or listen to your voice then you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood when you pour it on the dry ground so Joseph's dead and a new Pharaoh comes in who doesn't know Joseph, who doesn't know his brothers. Maybe he doesn't know the story. Maybe he does, we're not told, but he doesn't care. And he starts, he, he makes three moves to subjugate and annihilate the people of Israel. First, he enslaves them. And then he commands the midwives to kill the baby boys. And when they rebel and they deceive the deceiver and they don't, they don't acquiesce to that, then Pharaoh says, all right, everybody just start killing baby boys. So that's three moves. And the Lord responds with three signs to give back to Pharaoh. The sign of the snake, the sign of his hand, and the sign of the Nile water being turned to blood when it falls on the ground. The Lord is showing Moses, I'm the one that rises you up. I'm the one that makes you fall. I can make you a serpent crusher, or I can give you leprosy. And the Nile River has been, the Nile River was a source of life to all of Egypt. And they used it for irrigation. They used it for everything. It was their it was their lifeline out there, and they used it for an implement of death. They used it to kill these Israelite boys. And so, so now the Lord is turning it back over, uh, and He's going to the the Nile is going to become a symbol of death because of the death that the Egyptians uh, turned the Nile River into. And again, another objection, verse ten. Moses said to the Lord, "O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue." And the Lord said to him, "Who has made Adam's mouth? Or who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord?" This is no, this is no, there's, there's a lot of conversation about this, um, who, who has made man's mouth, who makes him see or speak or hear or not. Uh, and the Lord can intentionally do things. This, this, kinda, this conjures up in your mind, if you're familiar with scriptures, in John chapter nine, there's a blind man who gets healed. But before he's healed, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, neither sinned. Uh, this is so that the glory of God might be shown through him. And it's a, it's, a, it's a long ongoing debate. Does God cause these things to happen? Does he make you be, be born this way or that way? And, and I'm not, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say that the Lord doesn't intentionally do that. And I, I'm not going to say that the Lord doesn't intentionally do that even once you're alive and well, once you're a grown person. He, he very clearly uh, gave Paul um, a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. Something, something occurred and the Lord allowed that to happen. The Lord very clearly did strike Paul blind in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, knocked him off of his horse, struck him blind. The Lord can do that sort of stuff. Um, I, don't, I don't know the inner workings of what the Lord does and does not do all the time. He just, he just showed right here he can make Moses leprous. With, with, no, in, like, no physical interference whatsoever. The Lord can do that. The Lord can make people blind. He can make people see. I don't, but I don't think that what's being communicated here is if you're born one way or another that the Lord intentionally did that. Because the truth of the matter is that we also f- suffer the physical consequences of our actions. And if you do something while your baby is in utero, that may very well affect that child. And you can't say, well, the Lord did this. It was his sovereignty. No, you, you have a, a part to play here. But I think, I think what more is being communicated here is that whatever it is that Moses can or cannot do is irrelevant. Whatever Moses' giftings are, whatever his hindrances are, if this is, if this is just a fear, what, if what Moses is communicating here is nothing more than a fear of public speaking, which apparently is like the number two fear in at least the West, dying in public speaking, or like neck and neck. Um, if that's what this is, or if he has some sort of actual like impediment with his, with his speech, he, he doesn't talk well. We don't know, but the Lord's saying here, listen, Moses, it doesn't matter. I got you. And if I got you, there's nothing that you need to worry about. I will work with you. You're my chosen instrument, and this is going to happen. I can do this, and I'm going to do it through you, is what the Lord is saying. Who has made man's mouth? Now verse 12, check this out. Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you shall speak. That is, that's tough. Did you notice the order of that? Go and then I'll teach you. Go and then I will instruct you. That's tough because we want want answers. We want answers now. We wanna know where we're going. We wanna know how we're gonna get there. We wanna know every speed bump. Every red light, every curve in the road, every every blind corner, we want to know before we follow the Lord. I'll follow you so long as I have some assurances, right? And I don't. And this isn't full sale, like especially with evangelism, apologetics. This isn't. This isn't just a wholesale like uh, permission to just go crazy and start saying whatever you want like like the, the word of the word the the word tells us to let the word dwell in us richly that is a command that we need to study scripture we need to study the bible we need to know what the bible says and we will never have all the answers we will never know everything and there are times when we just trust the lord with what it is that we do know but i love this that moses is shaken in his boots he's uncomfortable he doesn't really have a whole lot of guarantees here and the lord still says go just go in faith trust me i've got you You've got insecurities and you have insufficiencies, duh, you're human. I'm the one doing the work here. Go, and, and then I will teach you what it is that you have to say. Uh, I love that. When, when, Moses, when Moses speaks, and it does seem like, you know, as time goes on, if you've, if you've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and on, Moses does do a good bit of talking. Um, but the Lord is speaking through him. He, he delivers the Lord's messages. He says what it is that the Lord wants him to say. He is, he does get taught what it is that he is supposed to speak. Verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And so, so this is a move from objection to just refusal. Moses is sticking his heels in the mud and he's saying, no, I'm not going to do this. Please send somebody else. And so verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, some, some people see here that Aaron is, uh, Aaron's inclusion and in Moses' mission here is actually a little bit punitive, that Moses has, has drugged his feet. He's moved beyond reticence to actual refusal, and so the Lord's saying, okay, fine, I'm going to give you some help. You could have you done this. This could, have been, this could have been your ministry. This could have been your thing. But now I'm gonna give you some help. If you're refusing to trust me, if you're refusing to believe, then okay, fine. Here's your brother Aaron. And we know that Aaron can speak well because in Genesis 32, he's, he's pretty quick thinking on his feet. Right after the, or ex, in Exodus 32, excuse me, right after the Israelites are given the instructions for the temple, the very first thing that they do is they build a golden calf. They melt down gold, they construct a calf, and they start worshiping it. And Moses comes down from the mountain with the commandments in his hand, and he is mad as a kid with a sunburn, and he sees what's happening. He smashes the commandments on the ground, and he says to Aaron, what is it that you've let happen here? Remember what Aaron said? Aaron's like, hey, man, I've melted some gold. I threw it into this pot, and the calf just came out. Crazy, right? Aaron's Aaron's winsome. He's handsome. He's got a mouth on him, Uh, and so he's included here. But that wasn't the Lord's original, original intent. I, I don't know for sure if it's punitive or not, but I just try to lay all this stuff out because if you go home and you start studying this stuff on your own, that's one of the things that, that, you're, going to, uh, that you're going to come across. And, I, and one, last, one last thing. I, I, Moses' reticence and his hesitancy, is it, it gets to the point that it frustrates the Lord. But I do want to point out that it, it also is evidence that Moses doesn't start out in this ministry um, effort as a megalomaniac or wanting all the attention or wanting to be the, the man in charge. He's, he's not coming into it greedy. He's not coming into it selfish. He's actually trying to push the ministry away and it, it reminds me of, of, a, of a comment that Spurgeon made to his students. In the book lecture to my students Spurgeon said there to the young men going through his class he said if if, he said if you guys can do anything else besides the ministry anything else do it go be a plumber go be a bicycle mechanic go be a fisherman go do something else go do anything else if you can do anything else go do it get out of here leave but if the ministry has called you if the Lord is is calling you to this then you had better You had better build your life around it. You had better take it very seriously. Uh, This speaks to me because I tried to get out of this and I couldn't. And so I better take this very seriously. Uh, I had better be very careful with what it is that I say in this place. So Aaron is, is on his way. Verse 15, you shall speak to him and you shall put words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, which, with which I shall do many signs. Um, this is a bit alarming if, if you're reading through it. And all of a sudden the Lord says, I w- you will be as God to him. That's, that's striking. That's, I mean, that's a capital G right there. I mean, the Lord, the Lord is, is saying exactly what it sounds like. He's saying, but what he he means by this is simply that I'm going to speak to you and you're gonna speak to Aaron and Aaron is gonna say exactly what you would have said. So you're going to, in a sense, be the voice of God to him. I'm gonna speak directly to you and you relay the message to Aaron. So you're gonna be like the voice of God to him. That's that's all that he's saying there. So Moses, verse 18, went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and he said to him, Please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Does that ring a bell? Matthew chapter 2. The wise men come into town. And Herod says to them, hey, whenever you find this kid that you're looking for, let me know. So that i may come worship him but he was being deceptive he wanted to kill baby jesus and again it's this this it's the deception it's this deceiving the deceiver like the midwives who did not kill the israelite boys the the wise men did not go back to, to king herod they they left they went back home by another route and so herod in his in his fury sought out the life of every little boy that was two years old and, younger. and then eventually the day came when the angel spoke to Jesus' earthly parents and said, the people who are seeking the life of the child are dead. It is safe for you to return. That's in Matthew chapter 2 verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and he had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Pip mentioned this last week. I think it bears repeating. Um, we already know that Pharaoh's heart is hard. If you ask the question from, from chapter 3, why does the Lord say to Moses, why, why is the instruction that the people should go leave Egypt for three days to go worship? Why, why three days? And it's, a, it's at the very least just showing that Pharaoh is not going to be willing to let the people go even for three days, let alone let them go, period. His heart's already hard. And the, the, the mention of the three days there is just, it's already bringing up that Pharaoh, Pharaoh is a hard man. And that term, that term that he's going to make his hard heart, that means he's, his, his resolve is strengthened. He's firm. He's not going to budge. You can't leave here for three days, let alone be released from your burdens. I'm not gonna let that happen. Over my dead body is what's being communicated here. But that's even before this whole thing takes place. And, and we're gonna get, I'm gonna just, I'm just jump over there real quick, chapter five. Whenever Moses does confront Pharaoh, the first thing that Pharaoh says is, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should let these people go? Who is he that you should go worship? I don't know him, I don't acknowledge him, I don't recognize his authority. Just already a hard heart. From the very beginning, a a repulsion and a refusal to listen to what it is that Yahweh has has to say to Pharaoh. But we'll get there here in another half a chapter. So those who are seeking your life are dead. So he got on a donkey with his family and he left. In verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the miracles that I put in your power. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so he will not let the people go. And then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The blood of Israelite children is on Pharaoh's hands. Plain and simple. And and the Lord the Lord is saying here, I I see you, and I see your murder. And we're gonna see the culmination of this when we get to chapter twelve. So at a lodging place, verse twenty-four, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint, took a flint, and cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I'm reading the ESV up here. Your translation might be different and say something a a, a little bit different than that, but you know, convey the, the same idea. It is okay to read this couple of verses here and Say out loud, even if you want to, what? You know, what is, what is this? It's like this this narrative is going on, and then all of a sudden, not only is this story weird, but it actually doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Moses has been commissioned by Yahweh to go to Egypt to speak directly to Pharaoh, and then on the way, the Lord sought to put him to death. But he stops when Moses' wife throws their kid's foreskin at his feet. That's what we just read. It's okay to be a little bit shook by this. I'm a little bit shook by this. Uh, and boy, much ink has been spilled to discuss what's happening here. Um, and I'm just going to throw out a couple of, of ideas here. So, some, some people theorize, some scholars, are, they, they, what they say is that according to the language here, to, put, to seek to put Moses to death, it's kind of a weird thing. Like the Lord, when the Lord seeks to do something, He just does it. He doesn't need to try. I mean, He spoke words in everything that we see, touch, smell, sense. All of it just came into being with a word. He spoke and, crea- and creation blew into existence. So what does it mean that He sought to put him to death? It, it could mean that Moses became very ill. Or something else happened to him that threatened his life um, people really don't really don't don't know but there seems to be a lesson here so it, it may be part of an ongoing theme of the Lord's judgment now here's just a couple of ideas and then I'll tell you where I kind of land and then we can arm wrestle about it later but there seems to be a, it possibly an ongoing theme here when it comes to the Lord's judgment and that even the big, the big names throughout Christian history, the big names in the Old Testament, the big names uh, throughout the patriarchs and, and the, the struggle of the people with the Lord as the Old Testament continues, that even these people, even these, these fathers of the faith, the patriarchs, David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and, and Noah, they, they're, they're all these like powerhouse names and they all blew it. They all messed up. What, what, what Josh talked about a couple of weeks back, Sunday mornings back, that it is described that Noah was a righteous man before the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? The first thing he does after the flood is he gets blacked out drunk and passes out naked in his tent. So what are we dealing with here? What, what, the, what, what is at the core here is this righteousness, is this fidelity to the Lord. Weak and feeble and, and, and twitchy and impetuous and sinful as human beings are and always will be, what's being communicated about Noah there is this, is this fidelity to the Lord. But he, he, still, he still made mistakes. He still had sin in his life. And that was true for everybody. And there's these threshold moments throughout the Old Testament. There's these moments throughout the, throughout the story, throughout the narrative, where the Lord is moving somebody into a new era in their life, a new responsibility, a new intensity, a new revelation. And before that revelation comes, or before that move is made, there's this threshold moment, there's a a struggle. And and part of that struggle seems to be the, the Lord challenges his people. And even threatens their lives, but a substitute is always put in place. So it's possible that What's being worked out here is that Moses was on the run for 40 years because he killed a guy. And the Pharaoh sought to put Moses to death for killing the guy. This was in chapter two. And so Moses is in trouble. And Yahweh seeks this moment to confront Moses with this judgment. You killed a man and you buried him in the sand, but the scripture says that don't be deceived, don't be fooled. Your sin will find you out. The Lord is bringing this back to him and challenging him on it and putting him through maybe even a little bit of, of judgment, a little bit of punishment for what he did. But he's covered under, but Moses is covered under the blood. There's, there's, there's a charge here. Moses is guilty. We are all guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's this little Passover that occurs. Moses is spared because he's covered under the blood. And so this may also connect us to a couple of other stories. Uh, Abe, Abraham and, and Sarah, his wife, remember in the book of Genesis in chapter 21, they send Hagar and Ishmael away basically to die. They send them away into the wilderness and the, they almost do die. But the Lord, uh, inter, he intercedes, he meets them in the desert and he provides a well for them to drink from. And in the very next story, the Lord tells Abraham to go kill Isaac on a mountain. And there's some, so I'm just giving options here. There's some, there's some that see a connection here. So, so there's blood on Moses' hands. Abraham and Sarah threw Hagar and Ishmael out and left them for dead, essentially. The Lord comes back and visits Moses, and there's this struggle. There's this, there's this attempt on his life. And then the Lord brings Isaac up. The promised child, I mean, the child that Abraham and Sarah waited for for 25 years, the one that the Lord said, this will be your heir. The line of your descendants are going to come from this boy. Now take up on the mountain and kill him. But then again, there on the mountaintop, there was a substitute. The Lord provided a ram. And then Jacob, going back to see Esau, decades after he deceived his brother, decades after the mutiny, He's going back to see Esau and he's all alone and the Lord wrestles with him. It says that the Lord came and wrestled with him, fought fought with him all night long. There's this transition period in all of these stories and there's this moment when the Lord comes down and he meets with his his guys and he he fights with them. He challenges them. And in Jacob's case, and they never go away the same. They never go away the same. He touched Jacob's hip and it's the same word, the same word that the Lord touched Jacob's hip and put it out of socket. And Jacob's, Jacob's quarrel with the Lord gave him a new name, gave him a new hope, gave him a new revelation, but for the rest of his life, he walked with a limp, which I loved that imagery. That's expound on that another time, another place, but I love that. He met face to face with the Lord and wrestled with him, and he was never the same. He never walked away, This he never was the same again in more ways than one, and it's the same word. He touched his hip and put it out of joint. Zipporah takes the foreskin and touches Moses' feet, and it's also the same word in chapter 12, at the first, at the Passover, whenever the angel of death comes and the Lord says, if you make a sacrifice and you take a hyssop branch and you dip it in the blood of the sacrifice and you touch the doorposts of your home, death will pass by you. It's all the same word. Zipporah touched Moses' feet, the Lord touched Jacob's hip, and the Israelites touched the doorposts with the blood. So that's one of the ideas that's happening here. The Lord is coming, and he's confronting Moses with his failures and with his frailty, and again saying, you're saved by grace. There is an atonement. There is a substitute. Now carry on. It could also be, this is just, I'll just give one other, <laughs> one other option here. It may be that... Moses is in trouble because he didn't circumcise his son. We're told in Hebrews that Moses was hidden by his parents for three months before they put him in the, in the basket in the river. So Moses himself was likely circumcised, but his son was born outside the camp. And so it's, it's quite possible, it's, I mean, his son was not, was, was not circumcised, and so the Lord comes and... Circumcision was a big deal. It was was commanded in Genesis chapter 17, and then as we're gonna see in Exodus chapter 12, you're not allowed to partake of the Passover meal if you're not circumcised. And so the Lord visits Moses with an illness or something, goes for his life, shakes him, I mean, shows him his frailty one way or another, makes him very poignantly aware of of his mortality. And it's the circumcision and it's the blood and the Lord passes over. And moves on i tend to think pip and i talked about this quite a bit this week i tend to think that this is probably about the circumcision it just seems to make more sense that the boy wasn't circumcised and the lord was like that kid's got to get clipped man i didn't i'm sorry that was but that kid's got to get circumcised uh so let's get this done this is a, a, little, a little image of the Passover, a little image of the blood. This is what's going to take place in the Passover meal. He's not going to be able to take. You are going to be like the guy that makes this take place. Your boy's got to be circumcised. So come on, Moses. This is like following Yahweh 101. You should have done this already. Uh, but either, either way, there is a judgment that comes from Moses. Uh, and then there is a substitute, a substitute that is available. There is a mercy that is available. There is a grace that is available. And that's what the Passover and the sacrifices are, are all about. So. Verse 20, boy, that was, a, that was a long one. Where am I at? Verse 27, so the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped." I love this because the people believed. In in chapter 3, the Lord comes to Moses and he says, they'll listen to you. Go and the people will listen to you. And chapter 4 starts off with Moses saying, they will not. No, they will not. And then chapter 4 ends with, they believed and they worshiped. And that's encouraging to me, because I don't, I don't know about you. Uh, I've, uh, I have a lot, of, a lot of friends, if I can call them that anymore, uh, that are not Christians. And they think that I am the, I've said this before, they, just, they, they are perplexed at my stupidity for being a Christian. And not just a Christian, but a Christian pastor. I mean, the, the, the time that I saw some of my old high school friends, I thought they knew. Yeah, they'd been living out of they have been living out of the country for the last ten years, and I figured that on Facebook or Instagram or social media somewhere, they just kind of picked up that I was a believer. We had this big reunion. It was great to see everybody. Uh, you know, these days I'm a barber. These days I'm a parent. These days I'm an arborist. These days I'm teaching. You know, eighth grade science. Everyone's you know they everything. Like, Ian, what are you what are you doing these days? And I was like, <laughs> I kind of chuckled. I was like, I'm a I'm a Christian pastor. I, I work at a church. And my best friend in high school actually, this is what he actually did. He went, so the wind turbines that are out by the dows, are those, do those work? Like do those actually generate? Like he just completely changed the subject. It sucked the air out of the room. But I pray for those people. And I, you know, there's a part of me that it's just, it feels so unlikely that that group of people will ever become Christians. It is so unlikely to me that those people will ever put their faith in Jesus. I have this attitude like Moses, like they're not gonna believe. That won't, that won't be them weird the phone call i'd get if they ever heard this message but i but i pray that they do i pray that they do you never you never know moses was objecting he was refusing the lord was pressing on him and these people did believe moses was commanded he was obedient drop the staff pick up the snake put your hand in your cloak he did the signs and end of chapter four the people believed they bowed their head and they worshiped praise god So afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let the people go. So this is, his, his heart is hard. Who is this Who is this Lord? Who is Yahweh? I don't recognize him. You know, being Pharaoh, he would have been at the level of deity in the people's mind and maybe even in his own mind. And he's saying, look, I don't, I don't recognize this, this, this God that you speak of is not in our pantheon. I don't, I don't recognize his authority. I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to do what you tell me. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Verse 3, and then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. That second half of verse 3, the Lord didn't say that, did he? He told him to go. He told him what to say. But this second half here was added, lest he fall on us with pestilence or sword they're adding to what the Lord said. Uh, this, is a, this is kind of a human thing to do. Eve, Eve did the same thing in Genesis three. The Lord said, don't eat of, the, of this tree. And when the devil comes and tempts her, she says, we're not allowed to eat of this tree. We're not even allowed to touch it. Not a bad rule of thumb, but the Lord didn't actually say that. And it could be that they're just trying to scare Pharaoh here. Pestilence, sword, if, he'd, if he would even do that to us, his own people. He's gonna do that to you. It could be that, that he, they're trying to scare him or it could just be that after this episode, whatever it is that happened with Moses where his life was, was come after, uh, that, they're just, that they're just sort of shook. But either way, they say to him something that the, Lord, that the Lord did not say to them, but it doesn't make Pharaoh budge at all. And this, I think, just speaks to, to Pharaoh's hubris. I mean, here's a, here's a threat. Let us go or the Lord may kill us. That's what, that's what Moses is saying. And dead slaves would be no good to Pharaoh. But he doesn't budge. He doesn't budge at all. It doesn't uh, doesn't make him second guess or rethink his position here. Verse four, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many. And you make them rest from their burdens? In the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore Therefore they cried, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. So let heavier work be laid on them and on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters were Egyptian slave drivers and the foremen were actually Hebrew foremen that were, that were in charge of, of keeping an eye on the workers. <clears throat> I think that there's something here uh, in verses seven and eight, you shall no longer give them straw to make bricks as in the past, let them go and make straw for themselves but the number of bricks that they make shall, shall not be reduced uh, for they are idle. He accuses them of being lazy. They are idle, therefore they cry, let us go and make sacrifice to our God. This, this was, this, was this, this jumped out at me, and I, and I, heard, I heard one guy talking about this. It's, it's just worth mentioning that Moses comes, and he says, let us go out and worship and worship. Moses accuses the people of, of being, being lazy. He ups the work, he ups the effort, he reduces the amount of, of, of whatever aid it was that the Egyptians were giving them at all. And then he, then he, accuses, the, he accuses the Israeli people of being lazy. And that just, it just sticks out to me that it is a regular occurrence that the world does not understand what Christians do. The world does not understand what we practice and that they'll actually use our practice as christians and accuse us of being something that we're not they the, the world whom we love i'm not trying to like pit us against them i'm just this is this is part of walking with the lord what we believe about sex and about marriage and about gender and about idolatry and about sin it doesn't make any sense to the world I, that, that same group of people that same that same group of people that when I told him I was a Christian pastor, just completely deviated, completely changed the subject. Did not want to talk about it. I remember one time it was, it was again it was my best friend. Uh, some years back, I was I was dating a girl, and this you know this guy, this friend of mine, he's he's been in and out of Portland since 2009. So you know we've just been kind of like hit and miss with each other. And he came to visit one time, and I was dating a girl, and he, without even blinking, he's like he's like he was just like. Non on a burger or something, just like You know the way that the world does. He's like, so how's the sex? And I was like, well, <laughs> we, we, yeah, we're not, we're not sleeping together. We don't, we're not, we're not doing that. That we would wait till we get married. And my buddy goes, huh? Just seems kind of dumb. Like he, like he just doesn't get it. The world just doesn't get it and i just want to i just want to encourage you in that I, I know that it's i know that it can be it can be difficult walking with the lord and that the world can accuse us of being homophobic and transphobic and all of these different things when we're just like no we just believe what the bible says about sex and about gender and one man and one woman and, and drugs and alcohol and you know even like i mean my goodness I mean, i'll admit romans 13 is hard for me because it tells you to obey the powers of the, the tells you to obey the rulers of the land If I could rip it out of the Bible, I would. I can't. I have to bow the knee. That's a a tough one. But even there, it's like, that's challenged. We're called all sorts of names. We're accused of being all sorts of things. Moses comes in and says, let us go worship. And and the Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. What it is, is you're lazy. That's what it is. This is a scheme because you're trying to devise a plan to get out of the labor that I have for you. So you know what? I'm going to turn the labor up. Oldest trick in the book. Oldest trick in the book. This is, we're, not, we're not alone here, friends. The, the struggle is real. I know it, and Moses knows it. Following the Lord is the way to go every day. So give them their burdens. So Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters and the people and the foremen shall no longer give the people straw. Verse 10, So the taskmasters and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for, the, for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work and your daily tasks each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel and Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them and were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all of the tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as you did in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and they cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this?" Easy to understand, easy mistake to make, but a mistake nonetheless. It says that they cried out to Pharaoh. That's an understandable response, but it's mistaken. They cried to Pharaoh. It's no secret that the days in which we're living are... Um, what's the, the nice way of saying it? They're, they're not restful, and they're not real certain. There are multiple wars going around the world. Um, the United States is, is pretty heavily divided, and there's all sorts of crime. A rise in crime, a rise in drug use. I mean, I've, I've lived in this city my entire life. And I've, and I've never seen this, is, never seen this before and, and people feel all sorts of different ways about it and they yell at the politicians and they yell at the president and they yell at, they yell at SCOTUS and they yell, everybody's crying out to people and, and I think that there's a certain amount of that that's fine. We're, we're allowed to speak with our vote and we're allowed to speak with our dollar. All, all of that's okay but, but Pharaoh is not ultimately who it is that we cry out to. The politicians are not ultimately the ones who are in Power and in control, and to be trusted um, at, at any at any level—state, national, all the all the rest. Um, I've. I've sat at many a table, and I've shared many a meal, and I've had many a sit down around a fire in one place or the other, And I've had these conversations about what's happening in our world and what's happening in our city, and what do we do about it. And it was that stupid measure that got passed, and it's the stupid Republicans, and it's the stupid Democrats, and it's all, all the infighting. Friends, as Christians, may, I, can we, may we be peacemakers. And I'm not saying that we don't get involved. I'm not saying that we just sit back on our hands and just let the world do what it's going to do. There is plenty of involvement that we can get done. There's plenty of volunteer work that we can get done. There's plenty of people that I know are working with kids and the elderly and the sick and with prisoners, and they're doing all sorts of good stuff. It's like real boots-on-the-ground stuff that's good. There's people who get into politics. I'm, I'm for that. I am pro that. But, but in, in the midst of all that, let's not forget that Pharaoh is not ultimately the one that we cry out to. We cry out to the Lord. We cry out to Jesus, and we, and we remember what is ultimately true. This is not our home. As, comfort, as uncomfortable as it may get, and friends, I know it's uncomfortable. I'm not trying to like pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I'm not trying to be sneaky. I know that life out there is, is wild, especially as a Christian, because both sides don't really like you when you're a Christian. Um, We cry out to the Lord. Can I just encourage us us to remember to to cry out to Jesus? There's there's a 6 a.m. prayer here every day for 30 days. Uh, on some months. And then the months that it's not 30 days of prayer, there's a Tuesday, there's a Wednesday, there's a Saturday. There's gonna be a men's Bible study starting on Thursdays. There's lots of opportunity. There's women's Bible study in the morning on Mondays. There's all sorts of stuff that we can come together as, as, as Christians, as brothers, as sisters, as believers in Yahweh, as trusters in Him. And the world is going crazy around us to cry out to Him. I mean, go to your task. Whatever it is that's specifically in the realm where the Lord is leading you to, to work and to function and to be a cog and a machine and to be a, a light and to be salt, do that. Do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. But crying out to Pharaoh ultimately is, is, is he, Pharaoh, the government, the politicians, they're not our rock. They're not our refuge. Yahweh, Yahweh is. Um, and along with that, what? pause for a minute. What's happening here? This is awfully dramatic. Just take a step back and be like, what, what's ha- the Lord? again, this is the Lord who could, who could just speak creation into existence. Why are we doing this game? Why are we doing this back and forth with Pharaoh? It's not a game, but it's like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Why is Moses being called to do this? Why are the people in this mess? What's, what's happening here? I, I, think that, I think that we have a hint. Um, the people come out of Egypt. And if you know the story, you know that it takes a long time for Egypt to come out of the people. Look at how bad this is. Their labor has increased. It's slave labor. They're being whipped. They're being beaten. And remember, not too long from now, they're going to be wandering around in the wilderness in chapter 16, in chapter 17, in the book of Numbers. It's recorded over and over again, the book of Numbers 11 and Numbers chapter 12, that the people cried out, oh, if we could just be back in Egypt. Oh, remember the leeks and the garlic and the onions and the fish that we ate without cost. It's like they're remembering their days of slavery through, they're looking back at them through rose-colored glasses. Like, look at how bad this is. What's happening here? I think that the Lord is beating the Egypt out of them. I think, that he's beating, I think that he's showing them that he is what they need. They're crying out to Pharaoh, for goodness sakes. You know, there's, there's, this, there's this verse, Deuteronomy 32, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this to you. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free. And then he will say, where are your gods, the rock in which you took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. What this is saying in Deuteronomy 32 is, the Lord will have compassion on His servants when when He sees that that their power is gone. When When they have no other rock, when they see that they have no other refuge, Pharaoh is not your refuge, the government is not your rock. Somebody's texting me, sorry. Whenever they realize that they have no more power, Israel became quite fruitful in Egypt. And now they're enslaved and that that I don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome or what but but there's this weird attachment that they have and even even after they're released from their bondage and they're in the wilderness and they're walking around with the tabernacle and with Moses they cry out they come they come to the Red Sea they come to not have meat to eat they come to think that they're going to die of thirst and each time they cry out "Oh, if we were back in Egypt were there no were there not enough graves out so that we couldn't have died in Egypt come on we had leeks we had garlics we had lemons we had onions we had meat and you brought us out here to die in the desert they get to the promised land and they see the nephilim are there the giants and they're like oh so you brought us out here to die they're just always wanting to go back to egypt the lord is breaking down their idolatry he's showing them you have no power you have nothing but me moses is like i can't talk and the lord's like exactly i'm gonna be with you and i just i just i wonder where you're, where, where, where you're at with that, where that, where that hits you. Because that hits me right between the eyes. Those of you who know my story, being 23, 24 years old, arrogant and proud, a tradesman making money and paying like $100 in rent every month with my plane ticket to Ireland and my girlfriend under my arm and my dreams and my plans and my hubris and my agenda, my refuge, my rock, my certainty, my goals. Me, 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 me. And in the period of three months, I wound up in a hospital bed, broke, single, no trip to Ireland, the plane took off without me, and I was spitting blood into a bucket. I went from 180 pounds to 135 pounds in three weeks. The Lord showed me I had no power. The Lord showed me that I had these idols, my youth, my health, my money, my prowess. And the Lord broke every one of them down. And friends, can I tell you, that it was the most horrifying, awful thing I've ever gone through in my life. And I am so thankful for it. Because what I realized on the end of that, really kind of like going halfway through it, but I was a real slow learn, was that I have no one but Yahweh. I have nothing but Him. And the same is true for all of us. So I think the Lord is pressing on the people. He's, he's squeezing the Egypt out of them. He's squeezing the hubris out of them. Never mind the leeks and the garlics and the onions. You have me. Never mind the fact that you can't speak well, Moses, or that you're too afraid to do so, or whatever it is. You have me. Friends, that's all we have. That's it. We have the Lord, but that's all we need. And he's more than we need. He's everything. He's everything to us. He's everything. And so maybe, you know, what, what, what David wrote in Psalms 51 after his his sin with Bathsheba, he he wrote to the Lord, may the bones that you have broken rejoice. I love that. I love that. Because when the Lord breaks your bones, he's not being cruel, he's showing you that you're going the wrong direction and what you need is me. And I love you so much, I will stop you in your tracks. I will do it and praise God when he does. It's a severe mercy, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. So in all of this mayhem and all, all of this chaos, I think that the Lord is, is, is making the people realize that all that they need and all that they have and who is making himself very available to them is the Lord God himself. You are idle, you are idle. Make bricks, make bricks. They cried out to Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh said, no straw will be given to you. Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Verse 17, but he said, you are idle, you are idle. Why is it that you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord? Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you still must deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when he said that you will by no means reduce the number of bricks for your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Um, there is just so much right there, man. I, I really... This, this, is where the, this is where the pastor in me really just wants to bleed out because I, I get this. <laughs> I, I, have, I have felt this. I have experienced this. And what I mean by this is it, it can seem like, and maybe you've experienced that when the Lord interferes in your business, does it, has it ever felt to you like his intervention makes your circumstances worse? That that may not compute in your brain because the church has so often taught the opposite. That he wants your best life now and as soon as you believe in Jesus, you're going to have more money and you're going to have better health and you're going to have that girlfriend or that boyfriend or that whatever. All of this prosperity gospel stuff. But how often in scripture do we see when the Lord gets involved, he goes into surgery and he gets to the root and he cuts deep into the heart and god bless it it is painful when he does that you know it's interesting if you take the if you take the time to slowly read through through acts saul who would later be the apostle paul in chapter 9 of acts is coming into damascus like a celebrity he's got an entourage he's got vip parking he's got valet parking everybody's with him he's got he's got letters of authority from the high priest to arrest and carry away and imprison Christians. He's the man. He's unstoppable. People, his reputation precedes him. And the Lord humbles him on the road. And within like a matter of a couple weeks, he goes into Damascus. I mean, he went into, he was going to Damascus with authority and with power to subjugate and imprison people. And he gets to Damascus blind, pretty well beat up, theologically scrambled, and he stays in the house of a man whom he would have arrested. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. His whole world gets shook up. And then within a couple of weeks after that, he becomes a Christian. Everybody starts to hate him. His his peers consider him a traitor. The Christians are too scared of him to really know what to do with him. And he's let out through a window so that the mob doesn't kill him and he sneaks away. He ends up in Jerusalem. Again, his peers don't trust him, and the Christians are too afraid to know what to do with him. Did his life get better or worse when he met Jesus? And the answer is yes. His life got better, and it, and it got worse at the same time. His, his world, I mean, everything that he talks about in the book of Philippians, his prestige, his resume, his power, his prowess, his education, all of it means nothing. He came in contact with the risen Christ. He knows that he's going to heaven. He gets saved and so he becomes an enemy of the people. He comes towards Damascus as a celebrity and he leaves as an outlaw. Why? Because he met Jesus and fell in love with him. And Jesus says to his disciples on the night of his betrayal, know this, that the world will hate you because they hated me. If the world hated me, they will will also hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater. Than his master, Moses is right in the hot spot right now. The Lord has commissioned him for a task, and he goes. And it seems as if, if you were there at the, at the message this morning, what is true versus what feels true or seems to be true, what feels true and what seems to be true is what the Israelites are saying. You have made us stink. You have put power in the hands of the Egyptians to kill us. You have made things worse than, you, than you, when we we've made things worse since you got here. We wish Moses that you and Aaron would just shut up and leave us alone. That's what seems true, that's what feels true. But what is, what is actually true? The Lord is getting them out of Egypt. He's getting them out of slavery. The same is true for us. The Lord is taking us home. He's bringing us, he's welcoming us into his heaven. Chapter six, I've been up here for an hour. Sorry y'all, this is just good stuff. So anyhow, chapter six, we'll try to get through this a little bit more, more quickly. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Notice that word in verse 1. Now, does the Lord get the, the Israelites out of Egypt immediately or even quickly? No, he doesn't. It's, it's, a, it's a battle. Ten, ten plagues of working on Pharaoh's Stubbornness and there's a, there's a whole lot there that we'll consider when we get there, but it is a process It's going to happen You notice in the Gospels how many times Jesus says Near the end of his the end, near the end of his ministry the hour has come this is this is done This is father now that you have glorified me But he hadn't gone to the cross yet what's he saying he's, he's speaking as if something in the future has already been done because when the Lord sets out to do something it's absolutely going to happen the Lord says now Because it's absolutely, what he sets forward to, whenever he sets forward a plan, when he makes a promise, it is absolutely going to come to be. But it just hasn't happened yet. So God spoke, verse two, God spoke to Moses, said to him, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Okay, so I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on this, and the rest of the chapter will kind of get through it, because I know I've been here for a while. What does this mean? I I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, that is, as El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, that is, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. so it could be that what the Lord is saying here, there's a couple of different schools of thought about what the Lord is saying here. I appeared to, the, to, the, to, your, to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the men of the past, I appeared to them as the God of power. I appeared to them as El Shaddai, but I did not give them my personal name, Yahweh. They didn't know me as that. That's, that's a new revelation for you. Um, so it, it, it could be that what the Lord is saying here is that there is a, I, I revealed myself personally to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I did not reveal myself intimately to them. And we, we have an understanding of this. Maybe you have people that you know through work and you shake hands and you say, hi, my name's Mike Quint, and here's what we're gonna do today. I'm here to help you with the thing. But, but those people in that workplace environment don't know Mike Quint personally. That's, there's a difference there. They know him, or they know him personally, excuse me, but they don't know him intimately. You know, they don't spend personal time together but they work together. There, there could be an element of that and the Lord is now coming to Moses and he's, and he's saying, I'm, I'm revealing more of myself intimately to you. I'm, I'm giving you more revelation than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. And you do see this throughout the life of Moses. It says in Exodus 33, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. There's an intimacy. There, Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he says, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. In verse 29 of Exodus 34, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain, but he did not know that the skin of his face was shining because he had been talking with God. It could be what the Lord is saying here is, I have revealed myself in the past personally, and now I am making myself more intimately known to you, face to face. Your, your face is shining. I speak to you as a man speaks with his friend. He declares to Moses, I am a merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Um, there's been a lot of scholarship that's been done on this. and. I took a class on the book of Exodus with our friend Tim Mackey, uh, one of the coolest experiences of my life, and, and he points out that the name Yahweh does actually appear in Genesis 12 through 50, chapter 12 to chapter 50. The, the, Lord, uh, the name Yahweh appears, from, the patriarchs called on the name of the, the Lord Yahweh 34 times in chapters 12 to 50, that the patriarchs actually say the name Yahweh and that the name Yahweh appears over hundred and fifty times and So that causes a, a bit of a question here. What is the Lord saying because Exodus 3 the burning bush is not the first time that we see the tetragrammaton as it's called uh, The name of the Lord Yahweh. It's it's not the first time that it's in the scriptures um, so to sort of like boil this all all down um, and the Lord does appear. The Lord appears to the patriarchs. He he appears in chapter twelve uh, to Abraham. It says Yahweh appeared to Abraham. Chapter twelve, verse seven, uh, Genesis Genesis eighteen one. Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. So some of the scholarship that's being that's being uh, thrown out here is yeah, the Lord may be revealing himself at a more intimate level to Moses. And I'm, I'm not ex- I don't I'm not convinced that these two of these are, are exclusive. I don't think I think that it can be both. Uh, the Lord is ex- exposing him, or revealing himself to Moses more intimately, uh, but the name has also been, has been revealed before. The name has been known. Um, and so some of the scholarship from a, a, a scholar named Francis Anderson, who is a Hebrew linguist, he, he puts forward that what's being spoken here in the original Hebrew language is not so much an assertion as much as it is a rhetorical question. The, it's, as it's translated in, I think, every modern translation that we have, it's translated, the Lord says, I did not reveal myself in this way. By my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known. That's, a, that's, a, that's an assertion. That's a, I'm, I, I'm making that claim. The Lord's saying, I have not done this. And what Francis Anderson points out is what, what the language actually could be indicating is that this is more of a rhetorical question. Did I not make myself known? And so the way that he translated it is as follows. Anderson suggests this. The Lord says, I showed myself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai, but my name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? That's a possibility. It is possible that it's, that it's translated that way. Um, I kind of lean that way myself. I mean, it's no secret. It's, 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 hard some, it's really hard sometimes to translate Hebrew into English. It's, a, it's not an easy task. Uh, there's never at any point that any like real doctrine or, 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 or hard points of theology are ever called into question, but there's moments like this throughout the narrative that it's like it that does seem like it could be a rhetorical question. I revealed myself as the God of power, El Shaddai, but my name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known? That, that kind of clears it up. So that's, that's kind of the way that I lean. Um, so that's just, I mean, you, I mean, I would love to hear, to hear more about that. If, if you guys know, or if, or if you study this in the future, I'd love to hear uh, any of your thoughts. Um, but this is a statement about what Yahweh has done, not a statement about what he has not done. Uh, and just to throw in your margins, if, you're, if you like this kind of stuff, that, that name El Shaddai shows up in the Old Testament a total of 48 times. So verse, verse four. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they lived as sojourners., moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom Egyptian the Egyptians have held as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and I will and, with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Did you guys catch what was repeated there over and over and over again? I will, I will, I will, I will, and I will. Um... It's just some, some thoughts here. The, the Lord says, past tense, I have established my covenant. He says, present tense, I have heard you. And future tense, I will bring you out. I will take you. I will redeem you. I will bring you. I will do this, the Lord says. This reminds me of, of the very beginning in Acts chapter 12. The Lord says to Abraham, I will do this. I will do this. Leave your, leave your kindred, leave your father's land. I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. And it's coming right off of the Tower of Babel where men and women were gonna make their own name great. They were gonna build a tower for their own namesake so that their name would last forever. And the Lord scattered them. And then he comes to one man and he says, all of your resources, all of your, all of your kindred, all of your uh, peers, all of your help, <laughs> your entire community, Leave. go out on your own to a land that I will show you and I will make your name great. And that theme is continued here. I, I kind of had some ideas about, about each one of these I will statements, but we're, we're really running low on time. So I'm gonna move on with those. Um, by the way, I don't know if I've said this before, all of the notes, and I can say this for, for Josh as well, and I might be able to speak for Pip. All of the notes that, that we write, They're available, so if if you want any of these, I would be happy to print these off and give them to you. In fact, I actually probably just should do that. Um, Let me know, and I'll I'll print off as many copies as as I need to. So I will, the Lord says, I will do this to you. I will take you. You will be my people. No longer shall you have refuge anyplace else. Don't cry out to Pharaoh. Don't cry out to the government. I am your God. You are my people. You're safe. You're okay. You can't talk, Moses. That's okay. I'm with you. I am the lord i will take you you will be mine praise the lord what else do we have besides a slow atrophy and decay and death if we don't have the lord but he says you are mine i will take you and i will give you a possession peter says that that possession that inheritance is undefiled imperishable and unfading kept in heaven waiting for you praise god so the lord told moses first 10 go and tell pharaoh the king of egypt to let the people of israel go out of the land But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me, for I am a man of uncircumcised lips? Again, he is hyper-focusing on his own inability. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel and out of the land of Egypt. Verse 14. We get to end on a high note. We have another... uh, we have another genealogy here, so buckle up. These are the heads of their fathers, houses of the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite women. These are the slant, these are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to the generations, Gershon, and Kohath, and Mari, Uh, And the years of the life of Levi being 100 years and 30 years and 7 years. I just like that's the way it's written in the Hebrew 100 years and 30 years and 7 years. And the sons of Gershon, Libni and Shemi, by their clans, and the sons of Kohath were Amram, uh, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath were 100 years and 30 years and 3 years. And the sons of Merai were Mali and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram um, took as his wife, Yachbed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. That's the first time that we see Aaron and Moses. Now, I don't know if they knew each other when Moses was in Egypt. I, I, don't, I don't know. It seems like they must have known about each other somehow. Uh, but Aaron is the firstborn. That's why he's, he's, he's named first here. Uh, and if you just cast a quick eyeball down to chapter 7, verse 7, it says that... Uh, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83. Aaron was three years older than Moses. Um, so it's just, again, the Lord choosing the secondborn to be his, to be his instrument. Uh, it was uh, culturally the firstborn that was chosen. Uh, and the Lord just, the Lord does what he does. He, he does things the way that he wants to do things. So she bore him, Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Imran were 100 years and 30 years and 7 years. And the sons of Isar, Korah, and Nepheg, and Zikri, and the sons, of, the sons of Uziel, and uh, Mikshel, and el and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, and the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nabdab and Abihu. We're going to see them again. Part of the point of this geology is to show who Aaron and Moses are, and part of the point of this geology is to introduce us to people that we're going to see again. Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar and the sons of Korah. Mark Numbers chapter 16. We're going to see Korah again. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, Abisaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putil, and she bore him Phineas. You could write next, right next to his name, Numbers chapter 25. He's going to be a very zealous man. Uh, He's gonna get some stuff done. These are the heads of the father's house of the Levites by their clans. So verse 26, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. This is the Moses and the Aaron. There it is, Moses' name is in front again. This is them. In the history of our people, This is the Moses and the Aaron that got this done, that the Lord used to get this done. So on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This is another one of of Moses' protests. Um, I just want to end, just on a hopefully, on a note of encouragement. I think, bye, baby. I love you. Good night. I'll see you at home, babe. Bye. Um, we're all family here. That's cool, right? If I blow kisses to my baby from here. One of the, I just, I want to end. I want to end with this. This, this just struck me as I was praying over this text uh, just, just before um, we started this evening. Actually, when you, when you read through the Old Testament. And you read through the lives of individual people old and new really um, what you see a lot of is is slow is slow learning um, the the growth that the Lord brings in our lives is oftentimes very very slow and and I just want I just want you to be encouraged because I, I came into the Christian faith um, and really started following the Lord uh, at, a, at a time when I had, I had made a big mess of my life, and I had decades of bad habits clinging to me, and it took a long time for a lot of things to, to sort of wear off, and a lot of things that still haven't. And, and I came into a certain type of theology uh, when I really started getting serious about the Lord, and I really started studying theology, and really started getting involved in church, and listening to different teachers, and theologians, and doctrines, um, where I... I I came into a, a kind of theology where actually it just produced a ton of fear in me because there's these guys that would write and they would speak things like in Colossians chapter 1 it says that the Lord gave his life for you essentially, that he did this to make you holy and blameless and above reproach and there's this, there's this theology or this school of thought where guys would bang on the pulpit and they would say, see if you're saved then you need to be holy. You must be blameless. And if you're not holy and you're not blameless, then you're not saved. And if you're not holy and you're not blameless, then you really better be shaken in your boots, and you really better get your stuff straight and keep a stiff underlip and stop doing all those bad habits, otherwise you're going to hell. And it it really freaked me out because I had all these habits and hangups and doubts and fears that were still clinging to me. And this is obviously a part of 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 a big discussion, but can we just admit, can we actually just read what the Bible says and say that what, what Luther cried out, his, his great exclamation was simul usis peccator, which meant in Latin that I am simultaneously a sinner and a saint. First John teaches that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and Jesus said that anyone who comes to me I will never cast out, and if they are in my hand, I will, no one will snatch them out of my hand, and if they are in the Father's hand, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. We see in the book of Acts, the leaders of the church, Peter, dealing with a racism problem. I mean, Acts chapter 10, it's very clear that Peter still hadn't gotten it through his thick head that Gentiles are welcome into the faith. And he's a leader of the church at this point. The only point that I'm trying to say is that our sanctification is slow. And maybe there's somebody in this room that is struggling and hung up on something. And here we are, just, just finished, Chapter 6, and Moses is still saying, But Lord, I can't talk. I can't speak. Lord, this. Lord, that. Doubts, fears, lack of trust, lack of faith. Friends, in John's gospel, Jesus washes Peter's feet and says to him, You are clean. You don't need me to wash your body. You're clean. I'm just going to wash your feet. There's this daily confession that Jesus is teaching. And then Peter turned around and cut off Malchus's ear. Just like a couple hours later. Friends, we are a mixed bag. And Galatians 5.17 makes it very clear that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are opposed to one another. It's hard to be human. It's hard to follow the Lord. And praise God that his grace is new every morning. Amen? And so I just like, I, I'm not trying to make a salvation statement here per se, but I'm trying to say that if you're here tonight and you're walking with the Lord and you just feel like you're still chapters into your walk and and you're still hung up on Lord, but I I can't talk. I don't know if this is a good idea. I'm hung up here. I'm struggling with that. This bad habit keeps rearing its ugly head. Can I say to you tonight that his grace is new every morning? If we say we have no sin... We confess our sin. We, if we say we have no sin, we're, we're liars. We've deceived ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. And like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, and yet go and sin no more. Like, there is a growing process. But just be encouraged that in your growing process, in my growing process, praise God, he is patient with us. Because we're a slow learn. And Moses is showing us that he's a slow learn. The Lord came to seek and to save that which is lost. Amen? Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for showing us in your word again and again and again examples of, of men and women who you call to do work, and their hurts and their hang-ups are on display for all to see. Um, but Lord, you you continue to be patient. You were patient with them, and you continue to be patient with us. Lord, thank you for that. Help us to not have hearts that wrongly desire to abuse your mercy and abuse your patience, um, but that we use your kindness uh, as a, <laughs> the, the gateway to repentance, Lord. I pray that your kindness and your mercy is actually what motivates us to clean up our lives, motivates us to, to continue to wake up another day and rely on your grace and show the world the love of Christ in even our broken, feeble selves that are full of mixture. Uh, Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're patient with us and thank you that you know us even better than we know ourselves. Help us, Lord, tonight uh, by the good confession to, to band, band together um, as a church, as a body in confession and in, in encouragement and that we go out and we continue to tell the world about your great gospel and what it is that you have done for us, that you died, that you took the, you took the punishment of sin so that we wouldn't have to. That in you, under the covering of Jesus, we are saved. We become new creations. Thank you, Jesus, for all of these truths. Continue, please, to mold us uh, as, as uncomfortable as that molding may be. Lord, help us to continue with you day after day. Thank you for sustaining us. It is in your name that we pray and that we trust. King Jesus, amen.